Good morning. It's good to see you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for choosing to worship with us today. If you're joining us online, thanks for being with us here today as well. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. If you didn't bring a Bible today, hopefully you received the handout on your way in here. We printed the passage for you so you can follow along with us. If you've been with us over the course of this summer, you know that we've been working our way through a series called Unstuck. And the whole thesis behind the series is that there are certain challenges that all of us face that can cause us to get stuck. And so over the course of the summer, we've been looking at a number of the challenges that we face and how Jesus brings help and hope for us to move forward when we get stuck by those challenges. And so this summer, we've talked about the challenge of temptation. We've talked about the challenge of disease. We've talked, to, talked about the challenge of shame, guilt. Last week, if you were here, you know Pastor Brian talked about the challenge of commitment. And today we're going to be talking about the challenge of greed. Fortunately, it's not something we as Americans have to deal with, right? We laugh a little bit because we know it's true that even as Americans, we deal with this a lot. In fact, it's not just, greed is interesting. It's one of those things that it's not just something that rich people deal with. It's not just something that poor people deal with. It's not just something that people deal with in a certain country or of a certain age. Greed is universal. Do you know that? It's just a universal reality. It's one of those things that we all face and that we all have as a challenge. And it's a challenging thing for us. And one of the, one of the things that we're going to recognize uh, uh, through our time today is that greed is not just universal, but it's, it's more than just, you know, who you, wh- who you, what, how much you have, how much you don't have, where you live, where you don't live, how old you are, doesn't really matter. It's, it's really more about our heart. And that's what we are going to be focused in on today. And the reality is it starts in our heart early, greed does, doesn't it? I mean, have you ever run into a child who says, can I have fewer toys? Have you met that child? Have you ever run into a child who says, hey, can I have less ice cream on my plate or on my bowl? Have you ever run into a child who says, hey, 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 can you stop giving me so much allowance? I just need a little bit less. You ever run into that child? (laughs) Very real. See, it's a a hard thing, and it starts early, and it continues on for a long time. Because here's what greed says. Here's what greed says. Greed says this. More is always better, but it's never enough. You ever felt that way? More is always better, but it's never enough. And so it's one of those things that is challenging for us. And in this, in fact, in this passage, one of the things that we're going to be looking at is the challenge of greed when it comes to our wealth and our possessions. And one of the things that we get stuck on, that we get tripped up on, is an assumption that it com- when it comes to our money and our possessions. And here's the false assumption that we get stripped up on. The assumption that money and possessions are for my consumption. The assumption that we have is that what we have, our money, our possessions, is for me and for my consumption. And Jesus challenges that. And anyone who's willing to listen and respond to him can be set free from greed and be unleashed to live a life of generosity and joy, which is what he's, what he really ultimately wants for us. Now, I want to warn you up front that this passage will make you feel uncomfortable. In fact, it may offend you. And if it doesn't, I don't know what, it's, if it doesn't rattle you at some level, I don't know what will. And so what I want to do is just look at the passage with you so we can listen, hear, and respond to what Jesus has for us as we face the challenge of greed 
in our life. And so here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to please stand. We're going to read the passage that we're going to look at today in its entirety. Then we'll come back and we'll look at it a little bit more closely, verse by verse. But so we can get the full scope of this story, let me read it for you. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 1 all the way through verse 15, it says this. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to him, himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I am not strong enough to dig, I am, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he, then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who love money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Okay, go ahead and have a seat. Well, as you can see, this passage pretty much explains itself. Maybe not. If this passage, if you read this story and it leaves you kind of scratching your head going, what is this all about? That's the whole point. Jesus is a master storyteller. And he tells us this story so that we're thinking to ourselves, what's going on here? And so that we lean in and say, what is it that Jesus wants to get us to understand? And Jesus tells the story and he tells it this way so that we scratch our heads so we can stop and say, what's the point he wants to make? And he wants to make a very powerful point. So let's look at it in verse one. It says this, Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he told his disciples, and now this is more than just the 12 disciples. Disciples are really all those who are following him, anyone who are following him. So it's a larger crowd of people, not just the 12. They were listening to him, and he tells them a story. And he tells them a story about a manager who had so much wealth, so much possession, sorry, a rich man that had so much wealth, so much possessions that he had to have a manager in order to manage it. And some of you are thinking to yourself, man, I wouldn't mind having that problem too, right? I have so much, I need someone to manage 
all my stuff. That's what he, that's what this guy has. He has so much stuff. He needs someone to manage it. But the manager that he had was accused of wasting his possessions. So he gets wind that this guy is not being faithful. He's doing something dishonest, maybe shady, something on the side. I don't know what it is. But he's accused of not dealing well with his master's possession. So the question is, what is the master going to do? So then look at what it says here. It says in verse 2, So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be a manager any longer. So the rich man brings his manager in and he says, Listen, I've heard these things about you and I know they're true. So you're done. But before you go, I need you to tidy up the books. I need you to figure, you know, you know, figure things out, clean things up for me, because that's the last thing you're going to do, because you're about to get your last paycheck. So this is where he, he, he comes to. This is where he lands. The question then is, well, what's this manager going to do? He has a little bit of time, a little bit of opportunity. Where's he going to go? What's going to happen after he's fired from his job? And that's what we see happen next. Verse 3 says this, the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. That is, I'm an inside guy and I'm ashamed to beg. I have my pride. So he's trying to figure out what am I going to do because I can't do labor. That's not my gig. And I, I'm too, uh, too proud to beg. So what am I going to do? Where am I going to go when the job's up, the money's up, and the, the free housing is up? You know, what, where am I going to go? So he comes up with a plan. Verse four, it says this. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he's thinking up a plan and he's like, I got it. Here's what I'll do so that when the job's gone, the money's gone, I'll have a place to go and people to go to. So he's thinking about his future. So the question then is, and everyone who's in the audience at this time, when Jesus is telling story, because he's such a great storyteller, they're like, what's he going to do? What's his plan? And so then he goes into the plan. Verse five, it says this. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe me? So he goes to each one of his debtors, and his his master probably has a lot of different debtors. But Jesus illustrates two of them here. So he goes to the one, and he says, how much do you owe my master? Verse 6 says this, 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. So this guy, this manager, you know, there's, there's two illustrations of two different people he goes to. He goes to the guy who's an olive farmer, and he says, listen, how much do you owe? 900 gallons of olive oil. Okay, here's what you got to do. I want to, I want to just, I want to take care of you. I want to settle that debt for you. I want to take, you know, make sure that you're, you're well cared for. So let's do this. Let's sit down quickly, and let's make it 450. Let's cut it in half. Now, the people who are listening to Jesus tell this story, there's a mixed reaction you, would, you can imagine in the audience, right? If you're a person that's listening to this story and you're on the owing side of things, you're thinking to yourself, whoa, great deal. You owe 900 and it gets cut in half? Awesome. But if you're on the owning side of things, if you're the business owner side of things, you're listening to Jesus tell the story, you're thinking to yourself, man, what a crook. No wonder this manager need to be let go, right? So there's a mixed reaction. People are feeling different things as they're listening to this. But the olive farmer, he's thinking to himself, great deal. Where do I sign? You're cutting my debt in half? Awesome. I'll sign it right now. Thank you. Thank you. And hey, by the way, if you ever need anything from me, 
why don't you give me a call? Oh, okay, I might just do that, right? That's kind of the response that's going on here, the exchange between the olive farmer and the, the, this, this um, manager. Then he goes on to the next one, and it says this, Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. So he owes a thousand. He's like, hey, let's just settle things now. I know you've been carrying this debt. I just want to, you know, make it easier for you. Let's make a discount. Pay pay 800. You'll be good to go. And the guy's like, wow, awesome. Thank you. Hey, if there's ever anything I can do for you, don't hesitate to ask. Oh, okay, well, you know, I might be asking you sooner than you think, right? That's kind of what's going on from the manager to this guy that he's giving a deal. And the implication is that this guy did this over and over and over. He did this with all of the different debtors. He was just giving wholesale discounts to all these guys that owed the rich man money. And he's saying, oh, this is what you owe? Cut it in half. This is what you owe? Okay, 75% here. Oh, 25%. He's just giving them all discounts. Now, if you're listening in the audience at that time, and you're listening today, maybe you've never heard this story, you're thinking to yourself, what is this guy thinking? How is he going to get away with this, right? Because you can't hide this on the books. And the rich man said, I want to see the books. So clean up the books and give them to me. So at some point, he's going to have to hand over the books to the rich man, to the owner. And at that point, he's going to find out. And so you're thinking to yourself, what is going to happen? Is he going to go to jail? Is he going to be executed? What's the response going to be from the rich man when he finds out that his manager has been making all these deals real quick before he um, gets, uh, he gets fired? So notice the response in verse 8. It's quite shocking. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Now, how many of you were expecting that response? None of us. I mean, you were expecting some colorful language from, the, from the, the boss to the manager, not a commendation, but what he gets is the, is the rich man shaking his head, slapping his knee and saying, wow, you got me. Way to go. That's what he's saying. He's giving him a commendation. Now, is he giving him a commendation because he was dishonest? No. He was commending him because he acted shrewdly. This manager had a little bit of time and a little bit of opportunity, and he made the most of it because he was thinking about his future. And it's a brilliant plan because if the boss goes back to all the tenants and say, hey, sorry, big mess up, you owe me money, then all the tenants are mad at the boss. There are going to be lawsuits. There's going to be all this, this, this challenge. And yet at the same time, all the tenants are saying, man, this guy is so terrible, but that manager, he was always looking out for me. He was giving me a deal. This, 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 the boss, he's the hard guy. But then if the boss says, hey, we're not going to do anything. We're just going let to it, let it go. Then all the people who are the tenants say, why did they let that manager go? I mean, the, the boss just let a great guy go. I mean, the boss is the boss. But man, that manager, he was always, he had my back. He was always looking out for me. So, hey, he's, there's, my place is always open to him. That's the brilliance of his plan. And the, 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 the master, the rich man, recognizes and says, hey, I commend you. You got me. Way to go. Wow. I, you're, you're, you acted very shrewd. So he's not being commended for being dishonest. He's being commended for acting very shrewdly with his limited time and his limited opportunity to plan out for his future. That's what he is being commended for. Now, 
Then Jesus turns and he talks to the disciples in the last part of this verse. And it needs a little bit of explanation because he says this, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. So what is it that Jesus is saying here? He says the people of this world are, um, uh, uh, are more shrewd. Now, the, what does it mean, the people of this world? People of this world, he's referring to people who um, think and view this world, this life that we're living, as all that there is to life. That's what uh, uh, the people of this world view. That's, it's, a, it's a compressed worldview that they have. People who are living and saying, hey, it's, it's birth and death, and that's the end. Birth certificate to death certificate, that's the end. So it's a, they're living, people of this world live within a compressed worldview. That's it. And what he's saying is those people who are living in the world with that kind of a compressed worldview act more shrewdly with other people who are living within that concept, this confines, than people who have the light. What are the people who have the light? Well, the people who have the light are people who are followers of Jesus and have a much more expanded worldview because it includes heaven. And people who have of the light who are followers of Jesus, recognize that this world, this life that we're living right now, is just a blip on the eternal timeline, right? That's people who are living in the light, who have that knowledge. But Jesus is saying something. He's saying, listen, people who live with the compressed worldview, who, who recognize that this is, they just say, hey, this is it, are, act more shrewdly than those who have an eternal or supposed to have an eternal worldview, or those who, who have or supposed to have a larger context or framework. And so Jesus is saying, listen, the people who live in this world, this manager had a little bit of time and a little bit of opportunity, and he acted very shrewdly with it. He was planning out his future, albeit limited, but he was acting that way. And the point that Jesus wants to make to us is this, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that we are to do the same. That is, we're to make the most of our little bit of time and our little bit of opportunity to plan out for the future. And our future, because we are people of the light, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is eternal. So he's saying, listen, we're to be the same. We're to act shrewdly with this time, with the time that we have, but we're to do it with eternity in mind. And this is the real challenge. And then, just to... to, um, So that's the point that he wants to make. But then to drive it home even further, he gets more specific. And this is where Jesus shifts again away from the story. And now he's going to imperative mode. That is, he's giving a command in this next verse. And this is a command for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. If you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, and not everyone here is, listen, I am not telling you what to do. Um, I don't have authority to tell you what to do. In fact, if you don't have faith in Jesus, if you're not a follower of Jesus, um, he doesn't have authority what to, to tell you what to do, but you can still listen and learn some things from what Jesus says. But listen, if you're here and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a person of the light and you have an expanded worldview, this is a command for you. And Jesus then leans in and he gives more specific imperative for those who are followers of Christ in this next verse. Listen, look what it says. He says, I tell you, that is, pay attention to what I'm saying right now, people who claim to be followers of me. Use worldly wealth. He says, use worldly wealth. What is worldly wealth? Worldly wealth is basically, um, when he says worldly, he's saying it's temporary. 
That is, wealth in this world, it has a temporary value. Because we, again, we know that this world, this planet that we're living on, this, t- this, this time that we have is just a blip on the eternal timeline. He's saying this worldly wealth, it's temporary. Use this temporary resource. And he uses the word use, by the way. He doesn't say gain up, hoard, keep, hold on to. He says use this temporary worldly resource to, to do what? Because, again, it's a tool. He's not saying it's the end, the means. Like, the means would be like, oh, we, we're, the, the thought is we've got to hold up and store up all this money. He's saying, no, no, use it. Use it as a tool. For what means? He says this, to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, and by the way, at some point it will be gone, and at some point you'll be gone, and so he says, use this little bit of temporary resource because when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So he's saying, listen, use your little bit of resource now. The what, what you have in this world. While it still has value, use it to do what the money manager did. The money manager, when his job was coming up, the money was running out, he took advantage of his little bit of time and his little bit of opportunity to make friends for himself so that he would have a place to go and people to go to. And Jesus is saying, listen, followers of, 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 of me, he's saying, use the little bit of resource, the little bit of time to make friends for yourself for eternity. Listen, Jesus is not saying here, by the way, that you can buy your way to heaven. The only way to get to heaven, eternal, to eternal life, is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But what he is saying, he's saying, use this temporary resource to help other people know Jesus and put their faith in him so that they can get to heaven. That's what he's saying. And then when you get there, you'll be welcomed by them. When he says you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings, you may be thinking to yourself, what does that mean? Well, let me do my best to explain that to you. I don't know. I don't know all that means. But I think the implication here, the point that Jesus is trying to make is this, that he's saying our temporary resources can be used to make a difference for eternity in the life of others. That's what he wants us to get. But here's the challenge for us, and this is where we get stuck, because greed comes back in, and the default assumption, the default position that we find ourselves in is this, and we talked about it earlier. Here's the default assumption. The assumption that everything I have is for my consumption. The default assumption that we have is that our wealth, our money, our possessions are for me. That's the default assumption. But Jesus is challenging us to think differently about our money, about our resources, about what we have, our income. He's, he's wanting us to ask a different question. The different question he wants us to ask is this. How can I leverage more of what I have as a means to an end that's not me? How can I use what I have, what I've been given, for not my consumption, but for the benefit of others? And he's saying, invest in eternity. Like the, the manager who had a little bit of time, a little bit of opportunity. He said, I'm going to invest it shrewdly so that I have a plan, a future friends waiting for me. Jesus is saying, listen, use what you have, not for yourself, but leverage it, what you have, so that you can make a difference for eternity. And some of you get this. 
Jesus is trying to move us from greed, what can I get for myself? He's trying to move us from to what can I give to a life of generosity. And many of you have learned the secret about this too, haven't you? You have learned the secret that when you give, that's the secret to a life of joy. When you live generously, generous people live a life of joy, don't they? This is the secret. And Jesus is trying to help us get there. He's saying, listen, act more like the people of this world. They're shrewd and they're using their resources for the future. Guess what? We have a much more expanded future. Let's be shrewd with what we have, our little bit of time, our little bit of opportunity, so that we can plan for the future, so that other people can find their way to heaven, so that we'll be welcomed when we get there too. And there's so many different ways that that's modeled here at this church. In fact, I was thinking about our student ministries, and Lily mentioned earlier about our high school camp that happened a week ago, and next month is our middle school camp. And I love the fact that we have volunteer adult leaders that go on these camps. And um, what you may or may not know, that when volunteer leaders, adult leaders, say, hey, I'm going to go to that camp, what that means for them, for many of them, that you may or may not know, is that they're giving up personal vacation time to go spend time with students for a week camping on the hard ground. But they're giving that up. And the assumption that they're coming with is not, this is my vacation time for my consumption, but how can I use what I have so I can leverage it to be used for others for eternal purposes? And it's not just that they're giving up vacation time. For many of them, they're giving up earning potential, hours that they, they could be getting money. But they're saying, hey, I'm going to set that aside, my resources, what I have, so that I can invest here. There's also, I know this is to be true in our church, there's people who have said, hey, I can't go as a leader this year, or I can't go and be an adult volunteer, but you know what? I believe in camp. I believe that what happens at camp, kids encounter Christ there, and so can I pay for a student to go to camp. And there's people who've said, I'm going to use my resources to pay for a, ch- for a student to be able to go to camp because I believe that at camp, people meet Christ, that God can work in those environments. And I smile, I think about, I, I just, I smile when I think about our adult volunteer leaders. Um, when they get to heaven, I think there's going to be a little bit of a party. I think when our adult leaders who have gone to these camps get to heaven, they're going to be greeted by students that they've invested in saying, thank you for investing in me. Welcome. Thank you for making an eternal difference in my life with the little bit that you have, with the little bit of resources you have, not assuming that it's for your consumption, but using it, leveraging it for my benefit. That's the point here. I've sat down with a, a couple, and I remember this moment, I sat down with this, this family who were receiving a, um, uh, a, a sizable uh, inheritance and as they're receiving this a sizable inheritance, they said, hey, we're taking a portion of this and we're using it to pay for a property so that a local church could have a property that they could build a church on. And I just was blown away because, again, the assumption is you're getting an inheritance. Great. It's all for your consumption. But they were saying, no, 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 we want to live generously. We want to set aside a significant portion of this inheritance, not for us, so that other people could benefit and benefit for eternity. Eternity. Many of you have done that here. I know I've talked to people here at this church who have said, hey, I want to, I've, you, many of you invested in this building right here that we're in right now. You invested your time. You invested your resources. You said, I'm, I'm all in. I'm, I'm, I want to invest in making this church 
happen, this church be built, to whether you did it with your hands or with your money, you are a part of that. And guess what? Here's the cool thing. For many years, many people have been coming to this place to find help, hope, and home through Jesus Christ. And by God's grace, may it continue for a long time. But you invested in that. You got it that, hey, my resources are not just for my consumption, but I want to take the little bit of time that I have, the little bit of opportunity, and I want to invest in the future for eternity. When my wife and I were adopting our daughter, Kai, our first, uh, first adoption, um, we were going through the process, and adoption is an expensive process, and it was one of those things that we had to surrender. God, how are you going to do this? We're not quite sure. We're going to trust you um, to provide in your faithfulness as we kind of walk through this process, and it's a long process, and at different points along the process, you have to make continued payments for the process to continue. And I remember we were at a spot with our daughter where we were— um, we were at a spot where we needed to pay $5,000 to continue to move forward in the process. And we didn't have it. We were like, okay, we've got to think through how are we going to come up with this money? What are we going to do? Because we, we, you know, we believe God's calling us to this. Um, we want to adopt our, this little girl. And we need to go forward. And we didn't know where it was going to come from. At that time, someone reached out to us, someone that we um, really hardly knew. We barely knew them. And they reached out to us and they said, hey, um, our family was going to go on a vacation but for whatever reason, God keeps closing the door on our vacation. And as hard as we've tried, this vacation, it just is not happening. So we had to cancel our vacation. Yet we've set aside a certain amount of money for this vacation to take place. And as we canceled the vacation, we just felt like God was saying, this isn't money for you anymore. This is money that I want you to give away. And guess what? We'd like to give that to you. They'd heard several months ago that we were going through an adoption process. Said, We'd like to invest. We'd like to help you with the adoption process. Guess how much it was? $5,000. Yeah. And you guys, I still get overwhelmed by it. I still get overwhelmed by that because one, one, it's a moment of just God humbling me and saying, hey, I'm faithful. I'll take care of you. But it's also I'm humbled by the example the example, the model of someone who's saying, hey, here's money I've set aside for me. But I feel like God's saying, no, I want to use it for someone else. I want to use it for a different purpose. Instead of the default assumption, this is for my consumption, they're saying, how can I leverage it to help someone other than me? And that's what they did. That's powerful. What an incredible example. A different way of living for sure. And I know that many of you are very focused and very attuned to how you can give and what you can, how you can live generously, and you find joy in that. And that's a wonderful thing. And I know that many of you do that spontaneously. You do that sporadically. But I don't want to overlook the fact that many of you do it consistently, weekly. You do it every week when you come here. We talk about the offering. We talk about giving. Many of you give regularly, weekly here to South Hills Church. Because you've said, I, I want to invest. I want to invest in this place. I want to invest in these people and what God wants to do in us and through us. You've made a decision. And I thank you for that. And I'm not just thanking you because I'm the pastor here and it's, it's a part of, you know, how I also survive and make a living with my family. But I also just thank you because you're involved in something that's bigger than all of us. When you give here on a weekly basis to South Hills Church, Many of you just said, that's part of my plan. That's how I live life. I just weekly give. This is what I do. When you give, you are helping people who are struggling with addiction find freedom and, and hope. You are helping people who are burdened by grief find support and the healing that they need. 
You're helping young couples who are trying to get, you know, trying to figure out what marriage is going to look like, find Christ-centered premarital counseling. When you give, you are helping children who've been abandoned, orphaned, abused in Kenya find security in a children's home and find Christ-centered education. When you give here, you're involved in helping with the translation of God's Word in a remote jungle tribe in Indonesia. When you give here on a weekly basis, you're supporting dozens of uh, missionaries, including the Lubin that we talked about and celebrated this past week. You're contributing, you're giving to them and what God is doing through them and others. When you give, you are a part of um, helping with the discipleship of young adults and students here in this city. I could go on and on. I could go on and on, but when you give, you are making a difference. And this, again, this is not a pastor pushing you to give. This is Jesus saying, say, hey, you, you're, you say you're a follower of me? Follower of me? Get in the game. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I don't want you to get to heaven and for people to run into you and say, oh, it's you. <laughs> I want you to get to heaven and there to be a party. They are being welcomed and celebrated by people who are saying, thank you for investing in me. Thank you for making an internal difference with your time, your resources, all that you have. Some of you are going to be greeted by people that you've never met who are coming from a remote area of this world that don't even speak your language. You're going to be welcomed by them because you've made a difference. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, use your resources, a little bit of time, a little bit of opportunity to make an eternal difference. That's what he's getting at. Then he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. So in verse 10, he says this, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will be, be dishonest with much. So Jesus is you're saying, well, Jesus, what are you saying here? If I have much uh, and I'm tr- I can be trusted with it, I'll get more. Or if I'm dishonest, I'll have less. What, what is it you're saying? Then he goes on in verse 11. He says this, so if you have not been trustworthy, holding on to worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches. What Jesus is really trying to get at, and there's so much I could say from these verses, but what Jesus is really trying to get at, he's saying that money and how you deal with money and your possessions, um, you're not just to view them as a tool, that is, a tool to be used for a means other than yourself, but he's also helping us understand that money is a test. How we handle our money is a test for us to determine Who are we devoted to? What kingdom are we living for? Are we living for the bookended kingdom of this world? Or are we living for the expanded kingdom? The one that doesn't have bookends. The one that goes for eternity. That's the test. And listen, greed, if we hold on, if God gives you a few bucks and you hold on to it, you're missing it. You're missing it. You're missing the opportunity for further spiritual influence. Jesus is saying, I'm not handing over more spiritual influence if you're not being faithful with the little bit that I've given you, and you're not thinking for eternity. So he's saying, listen, it will shrink your influence, is what he's saying. Then he goes on in verse 12. He says, and if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? And you're thinking to yourself, okay, I'm reading this going, Okay, if I'm not faithful with someone else's property, that means a manager. And I'm not a manager. I mean, the stuff that I have is my stuff. I mean, this is, this is my paycheck. This is, I've got the, you know, the deed to the home. I've got the title to the car. This is my stuff. And so this doesn't really apply to me. But th- it's not true, is it? Is your stuff your stuff? 
No, how do we know it's not our stuff? How do we know that we're managers and not owners? We know because when we die, it goes away, right? We don't take, so already we know we're not owners. We're just managers for this little bit of time. We're just all, we're all managers. So the question is, what are you going to do as a manager of the resources that God has given to you? That's the question that he's getting at. What are you going to do with this resource? Then he goes on. Again, it's a part of the test of who are you devoted to. Then verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The test that he were getting at with what he's getting at with money is really truly, who are you devoted to? He says, not just you should not serve both God and money, or uh, it would be, it'd be helpful if you didn't. He's saying you cannot serve both God and money. And what he, he uses the word God and money, he uses the word mammon, which is uh, the deity of money. So there's now another deity in the room. When, when money is involved, there's another deity. And it just, he's trying to say, hey, there's a, which, who are you going to bow to? Which deity Who's got lordship in your life, your money or God? That's the, that's the issue that, that he's trying to press us towards. And he's trying to say, listen, you can't serve both. Some of you have been coming to church for a long time. You remember um, pre-COVID um, when we had, at one point, we would pass around a receptacle for an offering for giving. And um, COVID changed things. Online giving has changed things. But for me, there is something um, powerful about that moment, by the way, when church would pass around that receptacle for an offering, because it was a moment for every single person to check their heart, to check their priorities. And it was a moment and an opportunity for, to say, for us to say, I'm going to lay down the, the deity of money on the plate before the, the God of the universe. That's what the moment was. So whether it was that moment or whether you're walking through the boxes in the back of the room, it is a moment for us to check our priorities and say, who am I devoted to? Is it my money or is it God? Now, is it wrong to have money? No, it's not wrong to have money. Is it, not wrong, is it wrong to have a job and to, to, to have resources? Huh? It's just simply saying, who are you worshiping? Who, what are you, who are you devoted to? That's the question. And Jesus is pressing us, and he's pushing us forward to say, hey, listen, I want you to live differently, not with the assumption that it's all for my consumption, but it's with this different mindset. How can I use it as a tool and as a test to say, God, I'm devoted to you. And this is why I'm a big fan of uh, percentage giving, planned giving, that you're saying, no, this is the pre, I'm pre-deciding what I'm going to do with my money, my resources, because many people, if you don't plan, if you don't think it through, you will just be caught up in the current of our culture with your money. Do you realize that? If you don't think it through, if you don't have a plan, you will be caught up with the current of our culture. And what will happen with the resources that you have is that it will just be consumed by your own appetites. And so how can we think differently? Jesus is pushing us. He's challenging us. And the question is, what does that look like? And for some of you are saying, hey, I want to live differently. I do want to um, start to saying, hey, I, I, God, I want to I bring an offering. I want to live generously. I want to do differently. So let me give you a tool, a tool that can be helpful when it comes to um, thinking about giving. Now, this is not from the Bible, by the way. This is just a tool that's been used by Christians um, throughout history from, for centuries. And so it's just a tool. It's a starting point, something to consider when it comes to how do I give and how do I give generously? How do I live differently than I'm currently living? Assuming it's all for me, 
but instead, how can I live generously for others? So, so this is just a tool, a starting point to consider uh, something that many of you maybe have adopted at some point in your life. This is the 10-10-80 principle, the 10-10-80, which is 10% of what I have what, what, from the top just goes away. I just give it away. I give to the church. And then there's the 10% that I save and the 80% that I live on. This is, for many people, been a pattern. For me, fortunately, I was raised in a home where my parents lived in kind of this, with this framework, with this pattern. And so from the moment I had an allowance from my first paycheck, it was like always 10% goes to the church. That's just where we started. And I'm grateful for that, by the way. And if you're a parent with young kids, I just, I just don't, can't stress enough the modeling that you provide and the teaching that you provide for your children. Because I do know this, that it's much harder to put into practice a pattern like this later in life, isn't it? And if you talk to most Christians who are mature Christians, who are devoted Christians, who are later in life, they'll tell you, I wish I'd started that when I was a teenager. I wish I had just said off the top, 10% goes to the church, 10% I save, 80% I live on. Just a different way of living. And so it's an important thing. Now, some of you guys recognize this, but here's how we, here's how we tend to live. In fact, um, in, our, in, in America, instead of giving 10%, Americans give about 2% of what they, what they, their income, what they get, what they receive. And Christians, by the way, give 2.5%. So we're 0.5% ahead of the average American. But before you get too excited about that, just know this, that back in the Great Depression, Christians were giving 3.3%. So back in the Great Depression, they were giving more than now when we have so much wealth and so much around us. And it's just, it's just crazy. But that's, well, that's kind of the average right now. When it comes to saving right now, um, statistically, only 54% of Americans save for retirement. So almost half of uh, 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 people in our living in our nation are not saving for retirement. Well, let's just simply say that people do, and if you do save for retirement, many people are giving 10% or more for the retirement. We'll just say 10%. Dave Ramsey would say save 15%. Um, great, great advice. Well, let's just stick with 10%. But then the question is, well, how much do people live on in our country? Is it 88%? No, what is it? It's 100%. People in our country, you're like, well, the math doesn't add up. You're like, you're right. It doesn't add up, does it? This is why there's so much challenge with debt. Now, listen, I tell you this, not, not simply to, to, to make you feel bad or, or guilty or to pressure you, to push you. Listen, I'm just simply saying, if Jesus is saying, I want you to get in the game, let's come up with a plan. Let's come up with a game plan. What's a starting point? Where can you start? If you're young, start here now. Make this a pattern in your life moving forward. I'm going to live on a percentage rather than let the culture sweep me along and I just consume everything and everything I get goes to my feeding my own appetites. But instead, how can I live differently? And you may look at this and you say, hey, I don't give 10%. I give less than that or I give 2% or maybe I give more than that. It's okay. If you give less, great. That's all right. Way to go for giving. And maybe for you, the goal is, hey, how can I progressively give more? And maybe it's not 10%, but maybe in 10 years you get there. And you're saying, that's my goal. That's what I want to get to. Awesome. That's, fan. that's fantastic. And Jesus is not keeping score of you and like, you know, you know in or out. He just simply wants to, he wants to encourage you. He wants you to be welcomed. He wants you to be celebrated when you get to heaven. That's what he's looking for. He wants that reward for you. So how can we grow that way? How can we move that direction is the, is the, the, the concept. And some of you are saying, hey, I'm just struggling. My finances, my finances are a challenge for me, and I just, I'm kind of a mess right now. We get it. 
In fact, that's why this last year we offered a class called Financial Peace University. And my hope is that we'd be able to offer that in this coming year too. In fact, if you're here and you're saying, I just need help with my finances, would you write on that connection card, I'm interested in FPU, Financial Peace University. You can abbreviate it if you want, but just say, I'm interested. I'd like to, I need help. And I want a class or I want to talk to somebody so that I can get further along and live the life that I want to live. And not have my money manage me, but for me to be able to manage my money. That's the difference. And Jesus Jesus wants to help us with that. Now, I told you, we do want to help you, but I also told you up front that this passage might make you feel uncomfortable. And for some of you, it's making you feel uncomfortable. And I also told you this passage might offend you at some level. And guess what? Some of you are feeling offended. But guess what? We're, we're, we're in good company. We're in another company because in the passage, it continues on. Let's go to the next verse. It says this, the Pharisees who love money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. They were also offended. Now listen, I've told you this before. When we look at the Pharisees, it's not that we look at them and go, oh, look at those idiots and say, look how great we are. We're to look at the Pharisees and say, ah, how could I? It, it, Pharisee means spiritually spirit, serious. The people who are spiritually serious are struggling with what Jesus is saying. The, the point is for us is to say, is it possible that I struggle with this too? And the, the question that the, they have is, it's not about how much you have, how little you have. You know what it says in this passage? It just says they loved money. They loved it. So greed is not a an issue about how much you have, how little you have. It's a heart issue. That's the point. And so the question is, is it possible that my heart is caught up with this money issue? That this is my challenge, and this is why I'm stuck. And some of you are stuck, and you don't even know it. Some of you are stuck, and you don't, don't even recognize it or realize it. And I say this because some of you here have have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You're a follower of Jesus, and you have trusted Jesus with your deepest, darkest sins. You have trusted Jesus with your desperate prayers. You have trusted Jesus with your eternal security. But you struggle to trust Jesus with your money. Isn't that possible that we can get stuck there? Jesus, I trust you with everything else, but the money part, mm, I'm going to hold on to. I don't know if I fully trust you with that part. And it's a heart issue. Jesus is saying, I want all your heart. I want all your life. And guess what? I want to move you from greed to generosity, from what can I get to what can I give, because this is where real joy is. And may I remind you, again, we have a little bit of time, a little bit of opportunity. Jesus wants us to be thinking shrewdly about eternity not the bookended world, compressed worldview that we can sometimes get caught up in. Then the question of this is, well, I, um, in verse 15, he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. I just, this, this verse is helpful because we can justify all sorts of things. We can say, well, I need the money for this. I have to, you know, I'm managing it this way for these reasons. And, and they all might be good reasons that you have. I need to set myself up for retirement or help my kids. All these things are good. But we can be justified for lots of things. The point, again, is still the heart. What is the heart condition? And Jesus sees the heart. He's pushing us and pressing us there. Now, Jesus does not, by the way, ask us to do anything that he hasn't done for us. And so let me leave you with this final verse. It says this in 2 Corinthians, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, 
um, through his poverty, might, we might become rich. This is the, it. Jesus is not asking us to do anything that, that um, he wasn't willing to do for us. He was rich. He gave it all up. He gave his life for us so that we might, who were poor spiritually, be rich, have life, have freedom, be able to move from that kind of bookended worldview to an eternal worldview, a different way of living. This is what Jesus has done for us, and he asks us to follow him, to follow him, to trust him with all that we have. Let's take a moment and let's ask for his help with that together right now. God, as we come before you, we are humbled by the fact that you did give your very life for us, so we know that you were not greedy, but you were generous, so generous that you gave yourself your life so that we could be set free, so that we could have the riches and the glory of heaven through faith in the work of your son, Jesus Christ. So God, we thank you for that. And we ask that you would help us, Lord, help us to view our world, view the stuff that you have given us as a tool for a means that is greater than ourselves, that we might use what you have given us to make an eternal difference because it matters for eternity. God, help us to be a people that respond in that way. We need your help. We ask this in your name. Amen.